0: Hi, welcome back to Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak to real-world practitioners of serverless and get the stories from the trenches. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Joe Emerson, who is the CTO of Branch and who has had a long history of serverless technologies. So welcome to the show, Joe. Yeah, uh, so I've been uh, developing serverless
1: applications since about 2015, uh, starting with Firebase uh, and uh, done serverless development on both, uh, the Google cloud uh, and Amazon, uh, played around a bit on, on Microsoft's cloud. And the real driver, uh, in going to serverless for me was knowing how much time I and my teams were spending on infrastructure and also the ways in which infrastructure problems continually disrupted our ability to deploy and develop software, uh, how developers get blocked on infrastructure problems, uh, and generally how development gets stuck uh, when real-world, uh, even even in the cloud, infrastructure problems come in place. Uh, and so I oversaw teams building uh, applications in commercial real estate uh, on Firebase, uh, and now uh, full insurance back-end and front-end for a home and auto insurance company in the United States. Uh, and I have found that Serverless does meet all of the or give me all of the benefits that I would have expected, uh, which is, uh, you know, I need fewer people working on operations. We spend much less time on operations and software development uh, velocity is faster and much more predictable.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting what you focus on there in terms of the how much overhead there is with infrastructure. I remember listening to a podcast with, uh, I think it was Corey Queen a while back, uh, with uh, Matt Klein, who's the creator of the Envoy Proxy. And one of the quotes I got from that podcast was that Matt said that unless you are an infrastructure company, infrastructure is basically overhead. So how much time do we spend on overhead to doing our business versus actually building the things that's going to help us differentiate our products? It's just ridiculous. Uh, having been doing this for so many years myself, I totally understand all the problems that can come with having infrastructure and being responsible for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and if you're like a vice president of engineering, you can walk in, uh, you know, walk in in the morning and and know all of the important feature work that you're working on. Know all of the. Uh, additional work you're trying to do to make, uh, software development faster, better and easier for your teams. But you can walk into every day another minor fire or crisis and, and find yourself spending the entire day, uh, just trying to, to help what's going wrong in production. Even though in theory, that's something that, you know, <laughs> you, sh- I mean, the goal had always been, I think, you know, software developers develop, and then it goes into production, and it just works. Um, But, you know, the iteration of things over time led to, uh, with that attitude, led to operations making more and more rules, making it harder and harder to deploy software. And so I think as an industry, we realized we needed to do something about it. So we ended up with more development ownership of code uh, and more development ownership of infrastructure and uptime but the problem is as that's happened uh, more and more of these issues that are not really core issues to software development, keep seeping back in to development. And as we drive more to infrastructure as code, it means developers have to spend more and more time on infrastructure and on uptime. And so if you decide as an organization to take more and more of the infrastructure on yourself, even though it is cloud, but if you're taking Kubernetes on yourself, if you're taking you know VM baking on yourself, then all of those things are gonna seep back into the entire development organization. All of them are gonna block people Um, as you run into problems with them. And so the serverless mindset, I guess, as Ben Kehoe calls it, is one where you're constantly seeking to offload those things that aren't differentiated for you. And you're offloading them onto vendors uh, who handle more and more of that, of those capabilities for you. So yeah, I I completely agree that infrastructure is overhead and, and really anything that doesn't directly contribute to the unique value your organization is delivering that's all overhead and to make matters worse, as an industry, we're not really good at thinking about what we should be letting go of, and so anything you build in your organization, you know there tends to be a sense of pride over it, and it ends up being hard to throw it away even if there's no value in you having built it or run it run it yourself
0: yeah that's so true uh, i've had so many engineering teams that spend a very long time building infrastructure and at the end of it they feel really clever really smart and as you said really proud of the work but you just spend weeks and weeks of doing something that is not going to directly contribute towards the product making it better or adding any business value and yet it's something that you end up having to carry for a very long time because now that's part of your ownership for your architecture for your application
1: yeah and you know, one one interesting thing that happened at Branch, I mean, you know, this is something that we live with every day, this question of should we be building it? One of the things you have to do in the United States as an, as an insurance company is you have to generate forms. Uh, essentially, an insur- insurance is uh, you pay a certain amount for a contract <laughs> and that contract will pay you uh, out if certain things happen. There are lots of regulations in the United States where you provide to every state all of the individual forms you're going to generate for people. Initially, the the prices and the options that I saw for companies who would manage that for you, I didn't like any of them. They were very expensive. They seemed very clunky. Uh, and so we developed that ourselves initially. Our, and this was you know in the last two years. We were developing how we were generating these forms, how we were going to handle versioning them. Because when you file A new version of the form with a state, you have to then have a a, a different version for all the policies issued after that date. But the policies issued before that date still need the prior forms. Uh, And there are many, many, many different forms you have to generate. They have to look exactly like how you filed them. Uh, And we got down that path. Uh, many many hours down that path, and eventually it, we were spending so much time on QAing whether we had exactly put this footer in the in the exact right font and the exact right place that I went back to those vendors uh, and uh, discussed with them again and picked a solution that you know we're we're totally fine with it. It's not my ideal way to solve the problem, but it, it was the right decision because you know, we're not differentiating in how we're versioning and generating documents. I mean, that, that, that does a crazy thing. Our customers wouldn't say, you know, I'm picking an insurance company based on how well it generates these form documents itself. Uh, and so I, I think this is a constant struggle. And, and if I think if any organization isn't constantly asking what are the things that i've built that i can throw away cuz i can pay someone else to handle the maintenance and support of them i think that you're almost certainly keeping way too many things in house i think you have to be really relentless about this and and it's painful but uh but if you're not doing it uh you're you're probably suffering from the consequences of not doing
0: it yeah i guess that's also especially true for a startup where a lot of your survival depends on how quickly you're able to iterate on ideas and different yourself from the from the establishment. Yes. And I think a lot of the time, uh, the sort of questions of uh, build versus buy, lean, or moving towards build when you're a very large company, you've got such a high volume that it becomes imperative to sort of optimize on cost that's when I think that equation starts to lean towards building something yourself and owning it, rather than, the, especially when you're trying to uh, trying out a new market a new idea. And you know, why would you spend half a year building something when you can just get something off the shelf that can do the job for you? So you can actually test the idea to see whether or not there's any legs to it before you invest all this time and energy on, on something else.
1: Absolutely, that's absolutely correct.
0: You are also a very strong proponent for monolipos, and a common question I get is. Uh, Well, how do you do CI-CD with monorepos? And I know you've got some really interesting approach to that. Can you tell us about your approach to doing monorepos?
1: Sure. I really strongly believe that you're best off, at least in the early days, uh, uh, or with small team size, of putting everything in one repository. I think it solves lots of problems. Um, My strong belief in monorepos for small teams uh, and for startups is very tied to my belief that deployments should be monolithic for those same small teams and startups. And I think monolithic deployments are really important uh, because they limit the surface of what you need to debug and they simplify deployment for everyone. They also will give you great parity between different environments. And so whenever you're wondering, why isn't something working? If you're always forcing uh, a monolithic deployment of everything that you have, uh, and it's very easy to know this is what the state of all of the code was at that particular time, it becomes a lot easier to identify problems, debug problems, and have everybody working within the same uh, world space. Uh, and, and this is something that I can see a night and day difference. I think if a, if an organization switches from having multiple repositories that they're deploying separately to having every single piece of code that that is part of the platform or system gets deployed at the same time and sits in the same repository, I think you immediately see close to the end of, well, it worked in my environment or works locally here. Um, I also think you see, uh, the end of, well, I'm not sure how to mitigate this problem that I, we are finding right now in production. Um, and I'm a little worried about deploying every, you know, do we deploy everything out of its own repository? Do I have everything at the right version there? You know, what what, what is the right tag for this particular service? All of those problems go away when you have one repository and you deploy it monolithically.
0: So do you also find that uh, it becomes easier for you to share code uh, because uh, everything is uh, deployed uh, monolithically and you can reference uh, share codes via sim links or relative path rather than having to have go through this cycle of, uh, you know, go to the repo where you've got your share code is, change it, PR, publish package, and then you come back and update all the services and deploy them individually? Exactly.
1: No, that's, I mean, that's the huge benefit, right? Yeah. So you have... The shared code, everything's using it. You, we use Lerna. Uh, this is all Node.js, but absolutely, you know, if, if you think about it this way, you know, we have a lot of different functions, and we have front-end code, and they're using the same. Uh, they want they use the same helper functions. They're using the same data structures, uh, and you know, if if we want to add, let's say we're adding some field, uh, it's really common for us when we launch a new state. Uh, to need some new piece of information Uh, for example like Texas needs to know if you have uh, certain uh, types of storm shutters on your house that'll give you a discount so uh, you know the goal is and we're relatively close to this you just add storm shutters in one place ideally your GraphQL schema and then you would just go to the place where the discounts are applied and say hey if that's there calculate the discount and then you would go to the front end all of the interactive pieces and you would say hey We're going to need you to be able to show and input storm shutters and that's it and that is largely how it works um you know real world code it can be slightly messier but for us that's what happens you know we go we add it in we add it to the schema we add it in the places that that uh, need to see it uh, and that's it and you're exactly correct that if if these things were separated out not only would we have to kind of open each one of them up Uh, and add it, we'd also have to handle the alignment of versioning between them. Uh, And we would no doubt in in development and in the real world run into lots of these incompatibilities where we hit errors because we didn't do one of those things exactly correctly.
0: And for the audience that are not familiar with uh, what exactly you mean by the deploy uh, monolithically, I guess also maybe the question is uh, how do you structure your repos? Do you have uh, one folder in the root for every service? And in terms of your pipeline, is that one pipeline that deploys everything in parallel or do you do them sequentially? Sure,
1: um, so yeah, so we have one directory per, you could call it service. I mean, you know, one of the great things about monorepos is that you don't definitionally really have to define what a service is. Um, we use uh, AWS AppSync. Um, and we have React front ends. And so, uh, you know, a directory could be, we, we generally, every directory generally ends with either dash BE or dash FE uh, at the end of the sort of root name. So, for example, our React front end where our customers log in and get access to all of their uh, insurance information is account dash FE. So, that's a directory off the root and it has a React app within it. And then, for example, we have an AppSync API that drives our customer facing interaction. So both purchasing as well as that account front end. And that's called AppSync BE. And so within that AppSync BE directory, there's all the configuration for that AWS AppSync GraphQL API service and all of the functions that are behind that service that AppSync helps drive. But we also have a directory called packages. That is this shared directory of uh, Node.js packages (coughs) that just get included by both the front end applications and and the back-end functions. And so all of that is set up in that way. And then there's a deploy directory that has some code around deployment and uh, like to be able to deploy. When we send everything to CI CD, we split pipelines, and so every single directory essentially gets built separately, and there are some dependencies on each other. And so uh, we use Circle CI for CI, so it's a relatively simple configuration to say, build this, and then for this other thing, wait for this first thing to have built. Uh, and then we run automated test suites. Uh, We use a service called Prod Perfect that develops our test suites for us. And so we wait for everything to build and we run the test suites. In order to do all this simultaneously, we have 10 staging environments. And so when CircleCI kicks off the main workflow to do all the building, deploying, and running the test suites, it picks one of those 10 environments. And then it goes and it runs. And I think we probably have... 14 different directories or you call them services, uh, but that includes front end applications. We have about 14 of those that build and get deployed. And then we have two test suites that run simultaneously right now on those. And that all goes back into the pull request. And so we obviously will iterate with code review and with with those results. And then when it's ready to go, that same process is run to do the deploy in prod.
0: Okay. And I guess, um... What would you say are some of the drawbacks? Because listening to how you describe your process, it all sounds great, but one thing that pops to mind is uh, potentially your pipeline is going to take as long as the slowest component that you're trying to deploy. Is that something that ever you know, come across as an issue for your team? Um, you know, it's annoying. Um,
1: and, and especially now, so we recently switched to um, having our core insurance purchasing application be server-side rendered. And the best way to do that in the Amazon environment, at least as far as our research went, was to use uh, Lambda at edge functions with Next.js. And so what this means is that everything's in CloudFront. And if anybody who's been working with CloudFront uh, knows, I mean, a CloudFront deployment takes, you know, at least 10 or 15 minutes every time you do that. So that said, we do simultaneously deploy, but you're correct that end-to-end, uh, the deployment pipeline is as slow as a CloudFront deploy each time, which is, I think, we're probably averaging 22, 24 minutes on that. Uh, and then on top of that is the test suite, and the test suites take you know about fifteen minutes to run. Um, so you know we're talking about thirty-seven minutes to go end to end for us. That it's not an enormous trade-off. Uh, I would certainly like it to be faster, but my general view is that if it's going to take more than about a minute. It's okay if it takes less than an hour. One of the reasons why we have these 10 different staging environments is so that we can have a lot of this simultaneously going on. Also keep in mind that every uh, developer at branch has his or her own Amazon account, which is its own isolated environment to deploy into. Uh, We also have other environments that we deploy into for various QA or staging or testing or uh, development. And so the challenge on the pipeline taking, you know, 30 to 40 minutes is that if you were in a setting where either you needed a prod to play out quickly because there was some problem in production, well, that's the primary one that hurts us. Um, There is another one that I talk to a lot of developers about who really want to develop something and kind of have it have it reviewed and done and and pushed live as soon as they're done with it. And I don't actually agree with that as the right way to do development. I I think developer, I think the best code and the most maintainable code has mandatory code review. And once a developer has written it, I don't have any problem with it taking another day or so of reviewing and testing uh, just to make sure that it's what it should be as code. I just don't know how you, get a good code base unless you have those practices. Maybe there are companies of superstar, amazing developers where everything they write is amazing. But uh, you know, if you look at how journalism works, you know, people write articles and then they're edit, they're edited. Right. And uh, I, I, there's a saying that I certainly believe, which is there's no thinking, but in writing and no writing, but in rewriting. And I, Again, I just don't know how you get quality code without writing and rewriting it and thinking about it. Uh, and so having as part of the code review process, a 30 to 40 minute build and test pipeline uh, just doesn't seem to me to be much of an issue there. So I, there is a drawback in getting things to prod when we're get ready to get them to prod, but we don't have that many rollbacks. Uh, we don't have that, that much of a need to do emergency deploys into a prod, at least at this point. Uh, and so that part of it hasn't been particularly painful for us.
0: And I guess a lot of that, the 30 to 40 minutes is tied to how long CloudFormation, sorry, CloudFront takes to update. Oh, right. And I'm sure CloudFront is going to you know, try to catch up with uh, Cloudflare workers, which can deploy and update within a few seconds. So hopefully when that happens, a lot of your time will just magically go away because the platform is involved.
1: Yeah, yeah, the 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 longest other one, uh, longest other service is the AppSync backend, which takes about twelve minutes. And so, yeah, I mean, if if that went down, we would cut, you know, fully cut, you know, ten minutes off uh, off the whole length.
0: And it's, um, also, want to touch on something that you just mentioned there that uh, uh, unless you've got all these superstars, developers' uh, code is probably not going to be perfect the first time uh, they just finished writing it. One of your really interesting philosophies around recruitment which I think is very different from pretty much everyone I've spoken with, is that you primarily hire junior front-end developers. So what is your rationale behind this approach, and how well has it worked for you so far?
1: Um, Well, so the rationale is several reasons. Um, You know, I think the the primary philosophical reason for this is that... uh, So I've been working with uh, software developers for about 25 years now, and uh, certainly over the last 15, uh, I have noticed that when you hire senior developers um, or any developer you hire with as an experienced developer uh, in the tools that you're using, you are you're, you're you're getting experience. but the other thing you're getting is generally speaking, uh, a belief that, important decisions about architecture and uh, app- well, important decisions about application architecture and important decisions that will really affect the future of that application need to be in the domain of those senior hires. Uh, but if you combine that with two realities today, one of which is that we have no good continuing education practice in software development. There is simply nothing out there that will make it simple and easy for anyone to understand what the best way to do things is today versus, you know, five years ago or even 18 months ago. And if you combine it with, um, and this is certainly true in America and certainly true in larger cities, um, but a, a real arrogance in software developers. Um, it's not all software developers, but it is, uh, there is a real um, bro programmer culture uh, in, in software development <laughs> that has, yeah, that, that has, I mean, I think it's epitomized by the sort of stereotypical response on hacker news, um, which is, uh, is just brimming with uh, self-confidence, arrogance, and uh, generally derision for whatever, uh, thing they're attacking. Um, there aren't a lot of supportive, uh, wow, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that before that goes against everything that I've done to date, but maybe I should look at it. Like that's never a response. You see, (laughs) that's just not any, but that that's how you learn, right? That's, that's what, you know, continuing education would do.
0: So that's part one of my conversation with Joe Emerson. Please come back next week for part two of this conversation. If you want to access show notes or the transcript for this episode, please go to realworldserverless.com. I'll see you guys next time.